even now, I've been studying the science of love, the science of creativity, the science of intelligence, the science of wisdom. And this book was basically uh, a book I, I, I wish I didn't have to write, but I like to write books that sh- I wish was on my bookshelf. Everybody's writing a book on happiness. And if you go on Amazon, you'll find probably three new titles involving happiness that came out this month. And nobody was talking about the fact that humans have two sides. You know, one side is this really benevolent, kind, loving, angelic side of, you know, from babies, you know, nuns and Tibetan monks. And then the other side is we're animals. What's going on, you guys? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast. I am Ryan Caligiuri, and I am very excited to bring you our guest today, our interview with Todd Cashton. It's a good interview. We dive deep into a few areas of the book, the upside of dark side, why being your whole self, not just your good self, drives success and fulfillment. He's a really great guy, and I'm really looking forward to getting him back on the show because uh, he's written a number of books, and this was one of the first uh, books that he's ever written, and uh, to me, it was a good one. Really, really good one. Good perspective from it, and uh, I just hope you guys enjoy the interview. So why don't we crack right into this one, you guys? Here's the interview with Todd Cashton. Everybody, I am so excited to bring you our guest today, the author of The Upside of Your Dark Side, Todd Cashton. Todd, how you doing, man? Great. Great to be here. Hey, feel good. You know, before we get into the book, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book in the first place. Sure. Um, so I used to be actually I left when I left college, I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and was I was trained to be the next Gordon Gecko in my family, three generations <laughs> working on Wall Street. And um, and I left there uh, because one of my friends at three o'clock in the morning on the golf course where all epiphanies happen asked me listen, if you're reading these books on intelligence and creativity on your free time after coming home, why don't you just like flip things around and just become a psychologist and then just invest in stocks when you get home? And that was it. And I went into psychology. And for what, in a fortuitous situation, when I started grad school in 1998 was the year that positive psychology was formed. Hmm. Martin Sullivan created this new term about, you know, that, People have been studying illnesses and injuries and mortality and problems in humanity for, you know, for 100 years, but no one's been studying happiness, meaning in life, love, creativity, curiosity. And so he wanted to flip that around. And so for, for a good 10 years, I, and even now, I, I've been studying the science of love, the science of creativity, the science of intelligence, the science of wisdom. And this book was basically uh, a book I... I, I I wish I didn't have to write, but I like to write books that I wish was on my bookshelf. Everybody's writing a book on happiness. And if you go on Amazon, you'll find probably three new titles involving happiness that came Mm -hmm. out this month. And nobody was talking about the fact that humans have two sides. You know, one side is this really benevolent, kind, loving, angelic side of, you know, from babies to Mahatma Gandhi's and, you know, nuns and Tibetan monks. And then the other side is we're animals. We are, we're just, we're no different than dolphins, whales, walruses, chimpanzees, and orangutans. And just as they're selfish and greedy and territorial and they have infighting and they fight with their spouses and love their spouses and want to have sex and don't want to have sex. And um, they're, you know, there's limited resources, money, power, time. And, and so there's arguments and 
we deal with these things in everyday life and we are surrounded by people that are some loving, kind, interesting, fun people and also some obnoxious, annoying assholes. And <laughs> psychology has to has to deal with the true nature of what it's like to be human in this complex, volatile world. And that's what this book is about. Mm-hmm. It, it's really about balance. And it's funny, as I read this book, the image that I kept having in my head was just yin and yang, man, like white and dark, like evil and good. And, you know, even the book itself, you know, top of it's yellow, the bottom of it's black. Well, the version that I have, I don't know if there's other different colors of books or covers of them, but it's just balance. And in and, and a lot of the times we're not balanced because we focus on that, that pursuit of happiness. And I think for the most part, you know, all of us, we strive to be happy. We, we focus so hard on trying to be happy and, you know, we wake up and some people have mantras, you know, just be happy, be happy, be happy. You know, I got to be happy. And you're saying that that pursuit of happiness, it's garbage and we shouldn't be doing that. Now you got to tell us why, because that flanks all, you know, philosophy that people have that hold on a second, man. Like, I wake up yeah, wanting to be happy. Statement, yeah, yeah. It, and and you know and and listen. Um, and I completely understand. As a parent of three kids, I completely understand every parent saying, you know, all they want for their kids is to be happy. And a teacher that says all they want their kids in the classes to be is to to find what makes them happy. And I'm not dismissing that. Where I'm dismissing it, and thank you for um, giving that opening, is when it's the fundamental objective of your life, like the reason that you live is to be happy. And that is the majority. And, you know, there's scientific studies that show about 80% of people believe this is their fundamental objective of life. Now, now, after I now say this, people, people will not set up for it. And what I'm saying is when you try to be happy, it's sort of like a farmer who's trying to, to grow crops, who's basically saying, I was like, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that it's going to be 75 degrees outside, just a little bit balmy, sunny every single day of the year. And that's going to what that's going to help me um, take care of my family and make sure that I feed all the people that I feed every year. And the fact is, it's just not possible. The farmer needs rain for those, you know, for those plants to grow. The farmer needs big, huge gusts of winds and storms so that the pollen kind of floats around the field and make sure that kind of, you know, you have the cross pollination that allows those crops to grow. And, and the farmer needs darkness and the farmer needs like periods periods of, of cold of, of cold temperature because during those periods different types of crops are necessary for it to run and it's by an appreciation of that at different points of time and in different situations we need different psychological tools that we can get better at navigating the difficulties of our social world of change of volatility and just the fact that we are not always we don't always have the skills and we don't, we're not always in the mood to do the things that we need to do um, to keep things functioning, to be successful, to have healthy relationships, to be physically healthy. Um, you have to do things that are often uncomfortable. And this is about learning what psychological tools are you prematurely dismissing because of your fundamental objective of trying to be happy. Mm. And so let's talk about some of those things. So again, these this is where it really it really struck me. And each one had a different element to it that I thought very deeply about. And so it's this whole idea about, you know, anxiety, anger, guilt, this, you know, narcissistic traits, psychopathic traits, um, all these different elements that we look at in a very negative sense. And we say, these are bad things. At the end of the book, when I sat down and really contemplated it, I thought about it and said, they are neither good nor bad. It's all dependent on how we use it. 
and the perspective that we bring to it. And what I appreciated about the book was it told us how we can use some of these traits that we see as negative, that we try to, you know, push under the rug, that we, a lot of people use medication to try to control, um, you know, uh, and how we can use these for a positive, you know? So for example, when I look at anxiety, you know, in the book, you talk about anxiety and, and what I got from it was that, you know, anxiety is an enabler to us to um, react quickly, for example, in the face of danger. Um, so it, it, from anxiety perspective, a lot of people, when they feel anxious, it's very negative and I hate the feeling of anxiety and I'm an anxious person. That's a really bad thing. You're saying not so much. Why is that? Yeah. And I should probably, uh, you know, I should confess that it's not a state that I, <clears throat> that I enjoy just like every other human being on the planet. Um, it's uncomfortable. So here's, so let me even give another piece on anxiety. You know, we think about one of the things that everyone, I know that anyone who listens to a podcast, it's about books. Anyone who runs a company, anyone who works for a company, anyone who's raising kids knows that besides wanting kids to be happy and workers to be happy, um, it's also to be creative. And one path of creativity is, being, is flexibility, right? How do you think outside of your frame? How do you take a different perspective of lens? You know, you have that, 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 that photograph in the 60s, the first time that an astronaut took a photo of the Earth mm. from the context of space, and it, people's minds were blown back. I mean, it's before I was born, but right. supposedly back then, people's minds <laughs> were blown of the idea of, you know, the first time of like, whoa, like, we are such a small microcosm of the universe, and all these things I worry about are so meaningless in the grand scheme, and now I can, I can physically get my hands around that idea as opposed to just reading a philosophy book about it. And the idea, you know, when you travel to a foreign country and you get anxious because you can't get the language, you don't really know whether which, which stops in the metro you should get on and get off, and, like, what is the proper way to kind of make sure that your wallet is, like, is you're protecting yourself from being mugged and yet also not showing a, uh, showing a sense of disrespect towards people around you. What's the proper physical space between you and other people? All of that anxiety that you experience there um, is basically comes from a shift in perspective, which is like, I'm not sure exactly how to behave. And when you come back after traveling for several weeks abroad or in another country, you start to look at the world a little differently. Like, why do we only stand about an arm's length apart from someone when I'm talking to them. And why, why do men tap each other on the back with this weird mm. mixed martial arts love when, when you're giving a hug as opposed to physically just holding someone? Like there's this masculinity that you don't see in Portugal and Spain that you see here. Like why are we so uncomfortable, a man hugging another man, adult? And, you know, why are we unable to ask people about, hey, like how much money do you make? And how do you make your money? And why are you making more money than me? Like why is mm -hmm. it such a taboo conversation to have? And the beauty of anxiety is it opens portals to where are the threats, are they real, and can I see another obstacle to get around the threat? And that skill set does not often arise when we're comfortable and we're happy. And during these anxious states, when we think about all of these threatening scenarios of traveling, talking to people that, are, that seem stronger than us, smarter than us, wiser than us, all that is those uncomfortable, anxious experiences. We develop new tools in those moments of how am I going to get through this situation? And we bring that back when we come out of that anxious state into our normal lives. And we basically become more flexible when we're attuned to it and welcoming of that anxiety. Where the problem occurs is not from feeling anxious, but when we try not to feel anxious, we're in the same exact situation I just described. You're still on the metro not knowing how to 
how much eye contact you should make with other people in another country. Mm-hmm. You're still not sure how to get a, how to get through a conversation talking to Malcolm Gladwell or Stephen Hawking or whoever is smarter than you that you're in a conversation with. But because you're trying not to be anxious, you're not listening to them. You're not paying attention to how you can enter this conversation and what you should do. All your focus is on is how do I make myself look like I'm calm? And so you don't gain any of the, you don't access any of the knowledge and the new opportunities to see the world that are available to you. Now you still have the threat. Mm-hmm. You just don't get any of the benefits. And so the idea is kind of we go into an anxious situation, even with that, you know, the heart racing and the sweaty palms mm-hmm. and the muscle tension and be there and just, Knowing that, you know what, we're just another human being that's kind of suffering in that moment. What it does is it makes us attuned to things that we're not attuned to when we're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. When, we're com- when, we're com- when we're comfortable. Life is all about perspective and how you view things. Like one of the most successful CEOs that I know that I've ever worked with has anxiety and is very open about having anxiety. And he's very calm and people wouldn't know it. But he has this inner anxiety that he's able to control. And this anxiety ensures that he's very forward thinking. He sees trends coming because he's very anxious about what could happen to his business, what threats exist. And yet he uses this anxiety to his advantage. And because of that, he's seen as a a visionary, a futurist, you know, and he looks forward in the future so much. And why? Because it's all stemming from his internal anxiety of saying like, I don't want to be caught with my pants down. I don't want, you know, our business to be, you know, destroyed by some, you know, weird happenstance from the marketplace so he's always looking at market trends and what have you and because of that he's run some of the most stable businesses I think he runs like three or four businesses and every single one of them are, are absolutely successful and um, it, it's all due to you know I would say to his 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 inner anxiety that he has and so um, you know you frame it very nicely and in the book you frame it very nicely in terms of how anxiety um, can definitely be used as a positive. You know, one of the, the one of the groups that I work with is Customs and Border Protection, um, and especially in the aftermath of the last this, this current presidential election. Mm. And um, when you go to the when you go to the training center, one of the the three core values of Customs and Border Protection ends up being vigilance. Hmm. And when you talk to them about anxiety, they say, "I'm worried all the time. Like my job is to make sure that the borders are safe, whether that's." You know, vegetables that are coming in with new viruses that that our crops have been exposed to, whether it's drugs, whether it's sex trafficking, or whether it's a terrorist. And the thing is, I can't be calm. And so here's the thing. When a happiness consultant comes in there mm-hmm. and talks to these guys and gals, um, they can't they can't understand their language. Because the thing is, if you take away their anxiousness and their worry, you take away their superpowers. What makes these people heroes in the United States is basically they, they worry about all the things that could possibly go wrong, hoping for the best, bracing for the worst. But from worrying, they generate all the possible things that could go wrong, such that if it does happen, they're ready. And if it doesn't happen, they are more grateful than any of us mm. on the planet because they know what could have happened. And the worst thing that we could do is walk around taking all of these warriors who use it as a way to be a sentinel, mm-hmm. as to be a canary in the coal mine and steal it from them because we think that it's a good thing if everyone is calm and happy. It's funny how we don't notice this, man. Like that's the thing that's craziest to me is that the thought of taking that away, man, that would change how they do their job. They'd be crappier at their job if they didn't have that that kind of mentality or that internal trait. And again, that's why I think this book is so cool and why I think you know everyone needs to pick this up because 
these things that we look at as negative that we want to try to change. Oh, you're an anxious person. You got to get rid of it. Or you're an angry person. Right. You got to be less angry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because one thing about traveling around the world, kind of, you know, doing the, the book tour on this thing was I always thought that the, the emotions that people would have the most allergic reaction to were going to be embarrassment or fear. Mm. And what I've been surprised is, and this is, this is Ryan, an opposite of you, is anger is where the majority of people have the most allergies to. Hmm. And part of it is because I think there's this fear that you're going to turn into Lou Ferrigno and become the Incredible Hulk <laughs> if you let yourself get angry. And there's that idea of once I get angry, like, watch out, like, I'm going to lose control and I'm going to be throwing, you know, computer screens all over the <laughs> office. There's, there's that belief. There's the belief that if I get angry, people won't like me anymore because they're just going to see that I am – because in some way, we all kind of walk around with a little bit of a fraud in ourselves mm. as, you know, I still feel if I don't look in the mirror that I'm a 17-year-old punk who's listening to the Ramones. And so, you know, the idea of getting angry, it almost feels as if it's immature. It's socially inappropriate. Mm. Like, I should have that under control. So there's that social belief that I won't be valued and understood and accepted anymore. Um, the, there's the other piece, which is um, you don't think it's going to work. Like, mm. you don't think that anger will actually stop. Uh, an argument and you don't think that anger will actually get your kids it's not a healthy way to communicate with your kids as a parent or a teacher in a classroom or a boss in a workplace and the reason is because we've been inculcated with movies of you know whether it's wall streets or whether it's you know some marlon brando film or where the idea where the boss and the manager you know they're constantly blowing off the top and i think ryan you described it best which is when strategically every once in a while when you i mean so the evolutionary basis of anger is this is the emotion that arises when you feel that someone has put an obstruction in the way of goals that you care about or people that you care about. It's in the way of their goals. And because of this, you get pissed off. Mm -hmm. You have righteous indignation. Um, you're angry. You're frustrated. And so this is to get rid of anger is to say that we're not going to worry about obstacles that people place in our way with no rhyme or reason. I mean, we would have no civil rights for anyone except for white men, if it wasn't for righteous indignation, which is just a flavor of anger. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that people would give up this power, as you were saying, in negotiations, what we know is when people, so here's the, here's like the, the real, the real signature of how this operates in the real world, which is if people perceive you in a negotiation to be a reasonable person, not calm, not nice, but reasonable, which is a great thing to be, um, viewed as in a negotiation, the use of anger is at specific at a specific time point during that negotiation. If you feel that there is um, there's misgivings from the other side, works incredibly well. Now, if people think that you are not reasonable and you seem to be a quarrelsome person in the get go, and that's even just on the superficial look, right? A guy wearing a very tight T-shirt, a woman who has a very firm firm facial expression that looks mm -hmm. as if He's not willing to make any concessions. Anger doesn't have the same effectiveness. It's the transition. It's the idea that you walk in, you're kind, you're friendly, you're agreeable, you're listening, you're asking questions. But when you feel that there is um, that you are not being treated fairly in that negotiation, and you and you get pissed and you stand up and you raise your voice, people come to attention. What happens mm -hmm. here? Now, here's now I shouldn't mention this one really important kind of scientific uh, discovery, which is that. The effect men have more degrees of freedom of where they're able to express anger in business contexts, mm -hmm. and women do not. And that's just kind of the, you know, the diseases of sexism. Definitely. And so, but not, 
but not for black women. Black women get the same degrees of freedom as men. Other, and because the stereotype of the strong black woman holds in terms of how anger is used. But so if you have, you know, white women, Asian American women, Hispanic women, um, they have to be a little bit more strategic in their use of anger. And so there's ways of expressing it verbally with that in a way such that you can say, listen, I really appreciate working. And I call this the, uh, this, the discomfort caveat where you open up by saying, listen, I love working with you. Um, I, I get really uncomfortable having to talk about these kind of things, but I feel as if I am not being treated fairly in this situation and I'm not sure what to do because I can't get rid of these feelings. When you say an opening like that, the other people's defenses come down hmm. and then you can express your anger effectively. So basically it's by revealing your vulnerability actually showing your hand strategically, you actually can then express your anger. If you walk in the door and rip, op- rip, open, rip <laughs> open the handle and start laying into somebody, you haven't, the first thing that's going to happen, their defenses go up and they're going to protect themselves. And what that means is there's no concessions. It's these details that like, I love about like, it's, you don't want to say just anger is just good. It's more of, it's, you want to nail the exact psychological way that you can use these tools in the right dose in the right context. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's, again, that's one of the main takeaways from this book for me is that being able to use these different traits and embrace some of these traits and use them to your advantage. You know, we're not going to cover every single one of them. I think that's definitely for people to pick up the book and, and go into detail in each of these. And I think, you know, you're doing a great job of breaking into a lot of these and providing detail. You know, so we've talked a little bit about anger. We've talked about guilt. You know, as we sort of finish up here and we come to close to an end, you know, I want to talk about two things that, you know, very loaded terms. When you hear the terms, all types of thoughts and imagery popping up in your head, this whole idea of, you know, narcissistic traits or even more extreme psychopathic traits and to me when i read psychopathic traits all of a sudden i was just like what the heck man like where are you taking me now in this book like like all these things like like anxiety anger guilt you know i can follow that but then you go to psychopathic traits and that was a really funny one for me because i sat down and i listened to it for a little bit and i'm like holy crap hold on a second i think i have some of these psychopathic traits Things where when I think about a psychopath, I just think about this like, you know, knife wielding, deranged lunatic, you know, running after their people screaming, you know, with cross eyes, whatever. But right. <laughs> like I think that's what most of us think about. But uh, funny story, you know, me growing up in the martial arts, um, I-, I did full contact martial arts for many, many, many years. And, you know, seeing fists fly at me or feet fly at my head or seeing blood doesn't intimidate me at all. And so. You know, when uh, I was out on a trip with some friends, um, you know, we were in a bar in Mexico and uh, a huge brawl broke out, massive brawl. I don't know what it, the whole purpose of it was or where it came from, but this massive fight broke out and the people we were with just froze and they were sitting there like, oh my God, some people started to scream. Some of the people were started to cry and so I said, hey, hey, hold on, hold on. I'm like, guys, just get your back to the wall, you know, make sure that your eyes are open if anything's flying at you. I'm like, just, just stay here with your back against the wall. And some people are crying. I'm like, yo, I'm like, keep your head up, look up. Don't be stupid. Don't crouch. Just stand up and just keep your back to the wall because you're going to see everything coming at you. Then after everything kind of settled down, we walked out of the bar and the night was finished. And they're like, man, how could you be so calm in that? I'm like, I I don't know. I'm like, it's just not too sure. And so that whole thought just flipped right into my head when I read this book. And I was like, Jesus, maybe Ryan Caligari is a little bit of a psychopath. (laughs) Yeah, you you are. You are. You are. So tell me a little bit about this, man. Yeah, I can tell you, th- this chapter is, uh, we got the most, um, 
the most uh, mixed reactions for. And that's, and, I, and that's, that's great. I mean, one of the things is, you know, if everyone agrees with every point that we make that I would feel like I didn't write a good book. Mm. Um, so one is, you know, this is a compilation of science. This is not, these are not my, my op-ed thoughts about psychopathy and narcissism and Machiavellianism. So one of the things that, you know, we call it the Teddy Roosevelt effect and you just, you, you in that bar, that's exactly how Teddy Roosevelt would have been as well, who was my favorite president and probably fourth or fifth on most historians list. Mm. Um, so there's two parts of psychopathy. You know, and, and we do, you know, you know, we, you know, we think, we think of uh, serial killers and serial rapists. That's kind of like our, the Ted Bundy's. That's kind of what we think of mm-hmm. when we have the image of psychopathy. Um, but that, so one of the factors of psychopathy is called fearless dominance. And this is basically exactly, you know, Ryan in a bar with this mixed martial arts skills, which is um, a lack of reactivity in extreme stressful situations, um, a tendency to eagerness to find risk-seeking situations, um, and then there's this ability to kind of charm, influence, and persuade other people. Now, all of that sounds amazing. It sounds like, you know, Wolverine, uh, you know, in the <laughs> X-Men. It, sound, you know, it sounds like someone who can sit down with a bunch of World Series of Pokers players and actually hold their own despite not having their skill set because they're not reacting to, you know, to being picked on and belittled and kind of poked at. Um, and they're just able to kind of hold their own in the situation. And because of that, because they're able to be aware and have their full mental capacity in a stressful situation, uh, they make other people very uncomfortable and they have a little bit more social potency, a little bit more power where they feel empowered and are able to actually use all of their capacities as a poker player, as, as someone who can diffuse a, a fight in a bar, as someone who can um, deal with someone who wants to take your romantic partner away from you um, in a social setting. Uh, who can t- who can be with a boss who uh, negotiating a salary raise when they're disagreeing with you and sit there very calmly. So these qualities about being able to show during stressful situations a lack of empathy and a lack of concern of what other people think. Now people say this all the time, but usually people say it as a signal of hoping that you can see that they're actually fearless. But to actually experience that is really rare. Um, and and I do think that mixed martial arts and high-intensity interval exercise training is one of the ways that actually that you that physical regimen and psychological regimen is actually one of the ways you can train yourself to be a little bit more um, psychopathic in nature in moments. Mm-hmm. The idea of can you handle stress without the, the very normal physiological reactivity of the tendency to want to cower and avoid or fight somebody or freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this is a strength. And you can people have these qualities outside of the self-centeredness and um and sort of the maliciousness that is often the other dimension of psychopathy so just imagine having the immunity to stress the fearlessness and the charisma but without the maliciousness and not without the disdain um and lack of lack of empathy towards other people um these these are powers but one of the things is we've been told that there's such, there's such a bad quality of traits together that we have actually decided that we are going to kind of give up on them and just be, try to be nice and agreeable across all situations. And the fact is, is the situation, you know, Ryan, that you described, it's a rare one, but Mm. it's good to be prepared because, you know, we live in a, we, we live in a very interesting world right now where 
um, people are vilifying other people very quickly without knowing them based on very small signals, right? You wear a hat that says you're a Democrat. You wear a hat that Mm -hmm. says you're a Republican. 50% of the United States automatically despises you. This is a very unusual time. And so it's, it's not a bad time to be able. Can you, can you learn to talk to people without actually attacking their character? Can you be less emotionally reactive and adept at reducing how other people get triggered so easily and reflexively refuse to listen to you? Could you notice what are the terms and what are the behaviors that you do that stop conversations cold when you're hoping to move forward to getting to know someone, persuade someone, or learn something? And all of this comes from the ability to handle stress better. And the only way to do that is actually to train yourself to be, to be more uncomfortable such that when there are situations where there's the chance of being uncomfortable, you are prepared in low-stress situations. So in low-stress situations, train yourself regularly. Interact with people that don't think like you, don't look like you, don't act like you, and be able to sit there in those conversations. And you'll start to train yourself that when people start attacking your views, you just don't reflexively unfriend them if it's social media or start screaming at them and cursing at them if you're face-to-face. And these, these are skills that are needed in today's world. We could definitely go in and talk about all the different traits that are featured in the book, but you know what, you guys, you got to pick it up. You got to give it a read, like top 10 book guaranteed. You guys are going to enjoy this one. And, um, you know, I just really appreciate Todd, you coming on, definitely sharing some of the, um, some of your insights from this book. Again, that book, the upside of your dark side, why being your whole self, not just your good self drives success and fulfillment really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing so much with us yeah thank you for all the kind words i'm i'm blushing from all the compliments so (laughs) i i i greatly appreciate it right on man thanks so much my pleasure all right my friends there we have it that is the interview with todd cashton i hope you enjoyed it i really enjoyed talking to the man if you guys really enjoy the interview if you enjoyed my breakdown on monday then please go out, pick up the book, support Todd and uh, the great work that he does because uh, he definitely does some good work and he did a great job bringing some new perspectives to light in this book, The Upside of Your Dark Side. If you enjoyed the synopsis this week on Monday and if you enjoyed the interview, then please do me a favor, go on to iTunes, rate and review the podcast. Again, it means a great deal to me if you do go ahead and you do that. So thank you so much in advance. That's a wrap for this week, my friends. So I will catch you back here next week when we have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, and of course the interviews on Wednesday. Looking forward to getting back here. But until then, enjoy the week. Take it easy. I love you guys.